ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa. So sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid... My whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country— The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. Sabrina Imbler is on The Creature Beat. Sabrina is a writer and science journalist. And the reporting about nature and creatures is, for lack of a better word, fun. With titles like, This Ancient Wombat Was an Absolute Unit. And, How Many Ants Is the Right Number of Ants for There to Be? And one more, how I learned to stop worrying about their many tiny legs and love the house centipede. Sabrina also writes about creatures of the sea, blue whales and octopuses, but often creatures not quite as well known, like marine worms and gelatinous blobs called salps. I think that a lot of the ways that we write about sea creatures and other animals that we find strange is to really just describe their appearance and how it diverges from our own or how bizarre or like weird or uncomfortable like something that looks like a blob that is also alive like makes us feel and I really wanted to take these creatures like very seriously and to try to understand the questions about them that I would want to know of other people right like how do they move how do they eat like how do they spend their lives In their new book, How Far the Light Reaches, A Life in Ten Sea Creatures, Sabrina shares a collection of essays, each weaving a story of an undersea organism and a story of their own journey as a person who, as they put it, came out twice in their adult life. In one essay, they explore how a shape-shifting cephalopod helped them navigate questions about their own gender. In another, they celebrate their love of queer dance clubs through the lens of the Yeti crab, a creature who lives in the special but also perilous and crushing conditions around deep-sea hydrothermal vents. 
I really wanted to think about both of us as organisms um, in, you know, the creature's existence on in the world and also like the ways in which I, you know, am just at the end of the day, like another organism moving through the world, like trying to eat and mate and survive. Producer Justine Paradise and I recently sat down with Sabrina Imbler to talk about what we might be able to learn by looking closely at the lives, perhaps very different, very strange to us lives, of creatures in the sea. Sabrina, can you tell us about the phrase how far the light reaches and and what it's referring to? Yeah, so it's it's funny. I actually, I came out with a chapbook in March of 2020 called Dyke, parentheses, Geology. Um, And I found that title for the chapbook on Wikipedia (laughs) because they have those like disambiguation pages where it'll be like Dyke, parentheses, like geology, parentheses, like parking company, parentheses, like slur (laughs) slash like queer term. And it worked so well for me for the first book that for this one, I was like, how do I find a title? Let me just try to go to Wikipedia. And I think I went on the page for like ocean, <laughs> like went very big um, right off the bat. And there was a section that was just describing like how the zones of the ocean are divided. And the Wikipedia said, you know, the zones of the ocean are divided according to how far light reaches. And I was like, what a beautiful, what a beautiful phrase. And also one that sort of evokes, I guess, like, gazing inward, like going into some kind of depth and, you know, the obscurity that can come with depth. Um, And I was also, I didn't want my book to sound like it was just a straightforward science, uh, like popular science book, Mm -hmm. in case people would pick it up hoping to learn about jellyfish. And then, you know, (laughs) maybe they, you know, signed on for more than they bargained for. So I I liked that it was sort of a slant uh, approach. Um, But yeah, really, the credit goes to Wikipedia. So Sabrina, I want to talk about a specific essay. This one's called We Swarm. It's about a time you and some friends went to a beach in New York and you encountered something that you did not understand. What happened? Yeah, that's uh, We Swarm is one of my favorite essays in the book. It begins at a time when I was on um, a beach in New York called Reese Beach, which is a historically queer beach. And a very strange like natural place like you go and it feels more like a club than a beach like there's so much (laughs) music uh tequila like people in latex and mesh um but I was there in this very queer space to the point where I sort of forgotten you know that it is like a wild and natural space and you can encounter creatures um And a bunch of friends and I were there over Labor Day weekend, I think, and there were all of these gelatinous organisms that had washed up on the beach. Small, dime-sized, clear gelatinous blobs that were, like, pretty firm um, without very many discernible features. There was, like, a little spot in the center of them. And it was this wild experience of just, like, encountering this creature that I'd never seen before that was so undecipherable to things that I knew existed and also watching all of these queer people basically do citizen science of like trying to mm-hmm. figure out like what these creatures are and like half of them are tipsy half of them are faded like some of them are my exes <laughs> and we're all together being like are they fish eggs like maybe they're baby jellyfish like do they sting and it was this really beautiful moment
I didn't take a picture of the blobs, but I really thought about them like for years after. Despite their dour name, no one ever looked at something beautiful and named it Salp. Salps are fantastical creatures. If you dive deep enough, salps even glow. On shore, they look like beads of clear jello. But in water, they exist in pulsating chains that can curve like a snake or coil like a snail shell. These chains are made up of hundreds of identical salps joined hip to jiggly hip. Each clone is a distinct barrel-shaped individual, yet altogether the colony of clones make up a single salp, attached and moving as one. This is to say that individual identity is confusing for a salp, creatures for whom the notion of selfhood exists in the plural. For a salp, home is the rest of its salp. Yeah, I want you to dive a little bit deeper into that connection uh, that you were drawing in that essay between the Salps and and your own community on that beach. Yeah, so I, um, after emailing with a park ranger named Dave several times, I sort of made my own identification of these creatures as Salps, um, which are a kind of colonial organism. So one Salp is both an individual organism and also a colony of clones if the Salp is in its colonial stage. They have this very interesting life cycle where they spend time in like an asexual solitary stage where they're basically just shaped like a barrel floating, floating around the ocean, um, growing a chain of clones inside their body that then they sort of eject. And then that clonal chain is also a salp. And as I was writing about these salps, I guess I was just thinking like, you know, I, I encountered them on this gay beach where, you know, it's such a packed space, like everyone's sitting towel to towel, you are touching people, people are kicking sand into you, like, it's such a different space than the rest of the beach. I was thinking about, you know, times when the sun would go under a cloud and we would all like scream together, the sun would reappear and we would all like rejoice and how we were sort of reacting to the world as one big unit. And I also go to re-speech um, frequently uh, during Pride Weekend when, you know, there are all these marches in the city. Um, and I was thinking about being a part of the Dyke March, which is technically a protest and happens the day before the Capital P Pride Parade. And what it was sort of like to move um, so slowly throughout the city, but like in one great chain and how that made me feel a lot like a salp. And mm-hmm. I sort of learned more about the way that salps move Um which scientists discovered that, you know, it it might seem logical that the fastest way to move when you are this sort of chain of gelatinous um, organisms, that you would all want to pulse at the same time. But actually, salps, like each individual clone in a salp, sort of moves at its own pace. And that felt so um, in conversation with, I guess, the way that, you know, these marches happened and Um, the way that I felt at the beach. And I guess I was, yeah, I was really moved by my own experiences, feeling like I was part of a super organism and this very strange gelatinous creature that, yeah, felt very, very similar um, and known to me. And you also pointed out in that essay that the same summer that the Salps washed up, uh, a whale was, was stranded on the same beach, which made headlines. But, you know, as you pointed out earlier, you're essentially 
guessing that these creatures are selfs because there's no record of them in any news outlet that you could find. And so it feels like you're pointing out that there are certain deaths that make headlines and other deaths that don't. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I was asking this ranger about the Salps, he really wanted me to think about this humpback whale, which had beached. And it was, you know, a a beautiful whale and like a very tragic moment. But of course, that whale was making all these headlines and these Salps did not. Um, And I mean, it made me think both about just the difficulty of learning about gelatinous organisms or other invertebrates in the fossil record, right? Like scientists know Mm -hmm. that jellyfish and salps and comb jellies and all these other creatures that are mostly water, like have existed for a very long time, but they don't have the the privilege of having a body that fossilizes easily, right? Like they don't have Mm -hmm. the bones of a whale or a dinosaur or like the shell of an ammonite. So it's sort of this, knowledge that you know these creatures have been around for a really long time but we just don't have physical traces of them and I mean that reminded me a lot of the ways that I think about queer history both the history of Reese as a beach and also just queer people in history right like they have been recorded oftentimes in these you know, dehumanizing ways. Like I was reading all these old New York Times articles that were like nine homosexuals like arrested at Reese Beach for like gay conduct in a bathhouse. And it's sort of this bittersweet moment where it's like, you know, this is a record of of queer people who were around who were like finding joy in community. And it's also criminalized in the way that they've been recorded. And that felt very much in conversation with the way that I wanted to remember these creatures as salps, even though... Ranger Dave told me that he didn't think that they were selps and he thought that they were comb jellies. And I, you know, I, I didn't want to sort of push a narrative that was false, but I looked at comb jellies and I was like, I, I don't think that's what I saw. Yeah. And it's funny because I actually, two years after I had sort of written this essay in the very beginning of the pandemic, um, I went to a different beach in New York in the Rockaways um, called Beach 69 for this queer and trans surf club. After I like finished my little jaunt in the ocean, I was walking along the shore and I saw the blobs again, like the same exact blobs. They were all about the size of a dime. They each had a little dot in the mm-hmm. center of them. And I, it just felt like this moment of kismet. I was like, I'm surrounded by queer and trans people like <laughs> in a different beach in New York. And I'm sort of having the same encounter with these creatures. And I gathered them up into my hands and I ran back to the surfing tent. And I was like, I, fa- I found them. Like I've been looking for them for years. And <laughs> I was having a really emotional reaction. But then the leader... One of the two people who leads this um, surf club, uh, his name is Momo. He basically looked at me and then looked at the blobs in my hand. And they were like, oh, yeah, like, those are selps. Like, I see them all the time when I'm surfing. Like, they're in these big chains. And I, like, reached out and I touched them. And it was just this moment of, like, I felt so ridiculous that I, I guess I had pinned, like, this knowledge as, like, you know, this knowledge could only have come from, like, a, a professor or a park ranger. But of course, like, maybe I should have just asked queer people. If you're having a hard time imagining what a salp looks like, that's totally understandable. Each chapter of How Far the Light Reaches is accompanied by illustrations by the tattoo artist Simon Ban, who also drew many of Sabrina's own tattoos. You can check a few of them out in our upcoming newsletter, which, by the way, is absolutely free. We send it out every two weeks. There's a link to sign up in the show notes. You can also find a link on our website, outsideinradio.org. And in case you didn't know, in almost every episode of Outside In, we share a question or a prompt that we ask you to answer. 
and we share your responses in the newsletter or sometimes even on the podcast. Speaking of which, we have a fun one this week, so stick around to the credits so you can participate. Our conversation with science writer Sabrina Imbler will continue right after the break. Hey, Nate here. Have you ever dreamed of going on the voyages of some of the most famous and not-so-famous explorers in history? If so, then you should check out the Explorers podcast. Host Matt Breen takes you into jungles and frigid wastelands, across deserts and oceans, and to the top of great mountains as you explore the triumph, glory, and tragedy of each explorer. There are extraordinary stories of Shackleton, Magellan, Cook, Lewis and Clark, and so many other daring people from all across the world and from throughout history. Each explorer's story is told in rich, immersive detail, and each topic is given as much time as needed to tell the whole tale, ranging from 30 minutes to 10 hours. There's something for everyone. Find the Explorers Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or go to explorerspodcast.com to learn more. Welcome back to Outside In. Today on the show, producer Justine Paradise and I are talking with Sabrina Imbler. They're the author of a book of essays called How Far the Light Reaches, A Life in 10 Sea Creatures. All right, let's pick up the conversation with Sabrina. In terms of your approach to science writing, you've said that you're not writing about for instance, an organism that could hold the cure for cancer or a rhino that's going extinct. I'd also add that you're not necessarily writing about climate change, um, things that might be more easily pitched to some science editors. Um, yeah. How do you make that choice about what you are writing about or how do you explain to yourself what you are writing about? Mm, I mean, that's that's an excellent question. I guess when I first was trying to become a science writer, um, I, you know, followed so many favorites like Ed Yong and I, I read his coverage like breathlessly on Discover and National Geographic and now The Atlantic. And I would read these, you know, feature stories on pandas or whales or giraffes and be like, I have nothing new to say. <laughs> like, you know, there are 8,000 words on a giraffe. Like, that's amazing. Like, do there need to be more? And do I have anything to add? And it, at first it just felt like writing about unusual or like lesser known creatures was just an easier way in to sort of getting those pitches accepted right because like even if I don't have a particular like mm. new angle on um you know like a bioluminescent ostracod like no one knows what that is so like at least I can teach people you know about <laughs> what these creatures are um and how they live and so I think at first it was a very practical lens of like let me focus on the uncharismatic creatures um but then I guess just in the process of writing about them, I realized that they're kind of the only creatures I want to write about. Like, mm. I'm so much more interested in both the scientists who devote themselves to these lesser known creatures, these creatures who don't hold any, you know, known promise of like a cure for cancer or a cure for Alzheimer's, um, creatures who we're not, you know, hoping to exploit for the military or, and by we, I mean, like, not, I don't want to implicate myself in that, but I guess just like people <laughs> in general. Um, and I was very interested in people who were studying creatures just for the sake of like, wonder and curiosity and also you know the creatures that don't 
captivate people in the same way that, you know, a dolphin or a panda might, I feel like it's often because of their strangeness and their dissimilarity to us. And I was really interested in looking across that difference um, and finding sacredness in that as opposed to like distance or repulsion. And so I think I just felt like there were so many of these incredible creatures all around the world doing their own very strange things. And it was sort of like a life's work to look at as many of them as I could. Tell us about the essay titled Morphing Like a Cuttlefish. Morphing Like a Cuttlefish is about my own relationship with my body and my gender and how it sort of changed over time. Um, and the creature that I use as uh, sort of my my mirror in this is the cuttlefish, which is a creature that is very famous for its ability to morph and to transform and to take on the appearance of, you know, the seas surrounding it, of a rock, of gravel, of a, of a blade of seaweed, um, and also take on these really beautiful appearances that are used, you know, for mating or for, you know, displays to um, dissuade a predator. And I, you know, the cuttlefish is a very, I think it's a very famous <laughs> sea creature. I remember, you know, even as a science journalist, like reading coverage of the cuttlefish that was always sort of framing these different appearances as disguises. And I think as I was researching this book, that framing felt very false to me. Like, Mm -hmm. who are we to say that this cuttlefish displaying a different, you know, bodily appearance is a disguise? Like, what does that mean? Like a cuttlefish can just take on all these different appearances and that doesn't make any single one like less of the cuttlefish's true self, if if that makes sense. And I think I was relating a lot to that and thinking about my own personal transformation and bodily transformation. And I found myself envying the cuttlefish as I was writing it and its sort of ability to change its body so quickly to revert back to old bodies, just that sort of slippery relationship that it has to its form. It's it's amazing how sometimes when when you just simply describe what happens when a cuttlefish is transforming its appearance and especially gender expression and when it's placed side by side with a human grappling with that themselves it's like in comparison the cuttlefish can kind of like do much more sometimes (laughs) it's like (laughs) i don't know it's like sometimes the protests are like this idea that like changing our gender or transforming our gender like when people have a maybe unexamined view of this might say like oh that's like not natural and it's like well but Look what all these, <laughs> look what is possible, you know? Absolutely. And it's, yeah, no, I, I love that sort of pushback to like, you know, people who say this isn't natural. It's like the cuttlefish also like didn't always have, you know, its ancestors didn't always have this ability, right? Like they evolved to have these abilities like over years and years. Um, and I mean, as I was writing this um, essay, I was just thinking a lot about, you know, what it is like currently for people to like access HRT and other modes of medical transformation and how many gatekeeping um, obstacles, how, how much permission you need to ask from like doctors and psychiatrists to get these prescriptions um, and how cuttlefish like they don't need to ask anyone like they have all this power just entirely inti- inside themselves and they don't need to go to a Walgreens like, to wait, you know, to pick up a prescription. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think both like it, just how natural it is for the cuttlefish, but also how easy um, and self-contained mm. that process is. I really envied it. 
Reading a creature through its camouflage seems a misguided attempt to understand its true nature, its whole self. It would be like studying a zebra while it flees from a lion, or a mouse as it cowers in a hollow log. I want to know how cuttlefish morph when there are no sharks around, only other cuttlefish. I want to know what kinds of transformation the cuttlefish is capable of when it is motivated not by fear, but by community and sex, and I am not interested in calling it a disguise. So scientists and and science communicators often caution against the danger of anthropomorphizing, except in my experience, it's something that basically everybody does, (laughs) relating our own stories or sense of self to another species. But, you know, there are dangers that you actually share in, in your essays, like that jellyfish invaded the ocean, or in the case of the cuttlefish, um, when a male cuttlefish camouflages itself to appear female, that some describe this as a, quote, devious drag act. Um, the cuttlefish is sneaky, um, more worse words applied to that. But aside from demonstrating, you know, attitudes about gender that are very human, it, it can lead to bad science or make us take the wrong conclusions from research. Um, but, you know, in your writing, you point out when science and nature documentarians do this, but also you're pretty overtly doing it yourself differently. But what is your relationship with this, with anthropomorphization? Yeah, I guess when I when I started out um, in science journalism, I sort of, you know, felt like I had to hew to the very strong, hard line of like anthropomorphism is bad in every circumstance um, and shouldn't be done. And I felt like, okay, well, this is what the people who have these very fancy jobs like are telling me. So I believe it. Um, But I guess as I started to actually write about creatures, I realized like, even people who say that's bad, like they do it, as you said, like, it's hard to write about animals um, without any reference to ourselves. Um, And I think to write as if like anthropomorphism is all bad it feels very false and also feels very dangerous because I feel like so many of the ways that we do um, harm or exploit animals come from, you know, our lack of connection to them, our lack of understanding that we are all like organisms on the same earth. I think there are so many different ways to anthropomorphize, like some of which I find like a lot more meaningful than others, right? In one of the essays in the book, um, which is about whales, I, I talk about this whale, Telequa, um, who is a killer whale living in the Salish Sea, who lost her calf right after her calf was born, and she carried the body of her calf for, I think, 17 days. And that, you know, was a moment of, like, this whale is experiencing grief, like, very undeniably and that is something that we recognize in our own human existence and like brings us closer to the whale and to sort of deny that connection feels like wrong and like pointless um but I also you know in in the book wanted to be clear about moments where you know my anthropomorphizing or my metaphors um sort of stop short like there's this essay in the book that is about my experiences with sexual assault and I talk about this uh, worm called the sand striker that lives in 
the sand and sort of buries its body during the day and like attacks at night. And I sort of talk about this worm and the ways that we think about it and the ways that it's portrayed in nature documentaries to sort of think about like threats that I have felt in the past um, from like, I guess, men that I have had encounters with. But I also like in the book want to be clear and say explicitly, you know, that there's nothing like morally wrong about this worm hunting. Um, And so I wanted to be clear about the limits of these metaphors and when they fall short. Did the process of writing about your own journey or like researching the lives of sea creatures, were there any moments where that process revealed something new to you about your own experience? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, like constantly, I think. um, (laughs) I think there were discoveries that I made like in the process of writing each essay. There were discoveries that I made after the book had come out (laughs) that I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. okay, well, it's out now. (laughs) Um, The Cuttlefish essay Yeah, that was one that I was really anxious about writing because I was like, I have to figure out my gender before I write this essay, which is a stupid (laughs) uh, challenge that I posed to myself and kind of an impossible one. And so when I sort of learned about the cuttlefish's ability to jet out a silhouette of itself in ink, which is called a pseudomorph, to use as like a decoy to um, trick predators... I was like, oh, like, this is actually a really helpful frame for me to think about my own gender, right? Like, whatever gender I'm writing about in this essay, it's kind of like a pseudomorph. It's what I looked like and how I felt in this one period of time. And, like, I can appreciate that and, like, see it both as, like, yeah, like a moment of my existence and also as a relic and know that I might change beyond that and I might shift and change the way that I feel about my body and like that's okay and like the essay can sort of exist you know as this pseudomorph but I can grow beyond that so I I don't know I was constantly learning (laughs) things about myself and the way that I relate to the world and also the way that I relate to my various past selves that I think used to bring me shame or anxiety and, and I think treat with a lot more tenderness That was writer and science journalist Sabrina Imbler, author of How Far the Light Reaches, A Life in Ten Sea Creatures. They're also a staff writer at Defector Media, which is an employee-owned sports and culture site, which also happens to publish animal content. Sabrina is definitely not the only person who finds reflections of themselves in animals or even in creatures of the deep sea. So we're wondering, is there an animal, a plant, a sea creature that inspires you that you relate to? I mean, was there a time when you looked to a species in the natural world to help you figure out something about yourself, about your life? We might share your experiences on the podcast or in our newsletter. The best way to get in touch is to send us an email. We especially love getting voice memos because then we can share them on the podcast. Our email is outsidein at nhpr.org. And remember, anthropomorphize responsibly. This episode was produced by Justine Paradise and edited by Taylor Quimby with help from me, Nate Hedgie, Felix Boone, and Jessica Hunt. Our executive producer is Rebecca Lavoie. 
Music in this episode came from Loving Caliber, Auto Hacker, Volante, Silver Maple, Moon Crater, and Sove. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 